Good morning. My name is Pastor Nate, one of the pastors. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Jonah. We'll be continuing in Jonah this morning as we continue to worship him through opening up with his word together. Give you a few minutes to get there or to open that app. That might be slow. The word of the Lord says this in Jonah chapter 1, verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us how, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry lands. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing for the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? The sea may quiet, so that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more temptuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for, for you, O Lord, have done, as, uh, we have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. What an amazing passage. I I love this. This is great. A, because as I said last week, I'm a little bit of a sarcastic guy. I like irony. The Onion is a great, great website. Babylon Bee is another good one. And it just, it's oozing out of this passage again. As the narrator walks through this, this true story, this is historic of how God is working through this broken man. And he's clearly broken. Last week we ended with these pagans going down into, uh, into the boat where Jonah was asleep during this crazy, unbelievable storm. And he wakes Jonah up and said, let's pray. So these guys aren't even God believers. And they're saying, we got to pray. So we end off with essentially somewhat a prayer meeting. And as the prayer meeting ends, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing is changing. They're still in a storm. The storm is actually, as we see, getting worse. There's nothing they can do. They're at their wit's end. They've done it all. They see that there's a divine initiation in this storm. So they find out other ways to figure things out. 
So the sailors are seeing that they are unable to do anything to get themselves out of the trouble that they are in. They've prayed, nothing's happened. They've rode harder, nothing's happened. They just keep resting in their own strength to get them out of the trouble that they find themselves in. And in Jonah 1, verses 7 to 10, this is an interesting part because we see in verse 7, they begin to do something that how dare any Baptist do, right? They cast lots. They're gambling. Kind of like this dice. So you can think of lots as, a, as, a, as, as dice, and they're, they're rolling it against the, the end of the boat, trying to figure out who gets the highest number. Because that's the person that's going to be the person that we need to talk to. So they're, you know, they're rolling it through. Next captain goes first because, you know, captains should go first. And maybe the, I don't know, that's as far as my sea-bearing knowledge goes. The other officer. (laughs) They're all getting low numbers. And they're like, yes, yes, yes. And then you can just picture Jonah coming and he rolls his dice and he gets like 12. And he's there, maybe still crouched down, he rolls it, and you can just see all the men just turn their heads from the dice to Jonah with that look of astonishment. What have you done? So they come, let us cast lots. Why? That we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. See, what fascinates me in this is that Jonah hasn't said anything yet. He just keeps going. He just keeps going, rolling with it. He knows. He he knows what's going on. And we see that later on in the text. He knows what's going on. The sailors have been doing all the initiating this whole time. But Jonah, a prophet, whose job, his one job in this world is to stand in the presence of God and communicate the word of God to a broken people, has not done nothing to initiate this. His job is to speak, to say what God has to say, and he hasn't said a word yet. He still thinks that he's running away from the presence of God. He's still acting in that disobedience, and we see this in the previous passage. Twice it talks about how he's running away from the presence of God. And the sailors, with that roll of the dice, they find out what we already know. Jonah is the magnet. He's the one that's causing all of this. And the lot falls on him. And I was just thinking of that. It's like a comedy. Right, you can, th- you can imagine that the, the storm is is raging. It's getting worse. They're freaking out. As we know before, the boat is almost falling apart. There's nothing that they can do. They're just rolling under nothing. They've prayed nothing. Next thing, well, let's figure out what's going on. See, casting lots was a normal thing back then to find out the divine will. We even see that in the New Testaments when, when the disciples try to see who God wills to be, the dis- the disciple that would place Judas. And it's the last time you see it, but it's still there. So this is a common thing. And then they, the heads turn to Jonah and they bombard him with these amazing questions. You could just like, they're just shooting at him. Like, what are you doing? 
Because in verse 6, they say, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And this is the most interesting part that Jonah says. This is amazing in verse 9. Here's the man that we know is trying to run away from the presence of God. He is in complete and utter disobedience to him. And he comes and responds in verse 9. He says this amazing thing. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That is perfect theology. Perfect. It's amazing. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Except it's a bunch of lies too. He comes and he says, I am a Hebrew. These lotus statements that come up before it. He's, he's distinguishing himself from the rest of the world. He's setting himself aside. He's essentially saying this, I am a Christian. I am separate. I am different. I am called to be holy as God is holy. I am different. He has set himself. He's made a line. He drew the line in the sands. You're not, I am. I am a Hebrew. He set him side apart. And then he comes and he says, the Lord, Yahweh. There's no misunderstanding of who he's talking about here. This is God's specific name that he has called for himself. This is his name. This is Yahweh. This is the great I am. This is the Lord. There's no misunderstanding And then he continues on, he says, the God of heaven, Yahweh is the supreme deity, the one who rules over all. You spent your time praying to all these gods. I know the God who created all of this. You you pray to these specific little, they can't even speak as Isaiah says. They're crafted by man's hands, as Isaiah says. You're trying to make them figure out all your problems, and that's not working. I serve Yahweh, the God of heaven, who rules over all. And not only that, Jonah goes on and he says, who made the sea and the dry land. He is the God who made everything and is sovereign over them all. The creator is the master over his creation. We only see a storm two times like this in the Bible. God God causes one to start, and the next time we see it, he causes it to stop. With Jesus in the sea. He's the one who made it all. He is sovereign over them all. You know, on a side note, I was on a tangent. The thing that's amazing to me as I look this through is that God is either sovereign over everything or he's not sovereign at all. We have to understand that. It is what I rest in. That whatever circumstances I am facing in, God is in control of it all. From the storm to Jonah being thrown into the... We'll see that next week. Cheater, spoiler. God is sovereign over it all. He is the creator and master over his creation. If, he's a, if, he's, if he can cause a storm to rage like that and just get worse and worse, he's the same God that you can call out to who's in control of whatever circumstance that you find yourself in this morning. But Jonah 
is talking about the Lord who is causing the storm and the sea that he created. And he is the sailor's only hope for making it back to dry land that he himself also made. There's one thing here. See, Jonah talks about how he fears God. And this is the way that worshipers should describe themselves. But here's the problem. The fear of the Lord leads to a reverent obedience to the commands of the Lord. Jonah had received a very specific command. Go take the good news and call the Ninevites to repent. Instead, he gets up and runs the complete opposite direction. He calls himself one who fears the Lord. He's lying. And as I was reading this, sometimes I wonder if I'm the one who's lying too. If I call myself a person who fears the Lord, yet I'm in habitual disobedience all the time, what does that look like from according to what the Word of God says? See, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 29, it says, Oh, that they had such a heart as they always, to fear me and keep all of my commands, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Deuteronomy 13, 4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. I love that, hold fast to him. That's a great old English term. Hold fast, hold me fast. It's also a great song. Go home, search that song, listen to it all day. It's an old hymn. Joshua 24. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in serenity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. See, this is the exact opposite of what Jonah is doing. As one who describes himself as one who fears the Lord, this is the complete opposite. Two times in the text above, the narrator calls him as running away from the presence of the Lord. He is claiming to fear the Lord. His claim to fear the Lord is hollow. There's nothing there. His actions are showing the opposite of what his mouth is saying. It doesn't matter what he claims to believe if his behavior tells a different story. In verse 10, he continues on, and I love this. So the sailors respond, what is it that you have done? Explanation point. Are you nuts? You just finished describing to us the God whom you serve as the one who created everything, who's in charge of the sea and the dry land, and you're trying to run away from him? The pagan. The one who's not a worshiper of God, is acknowledging more about who God is than the person who's claiming to be the, who fears the Lord. Are you crazy? You can't run from God. Not the one that you described to us. See, the sailors were praying to specific deities, you know, the sea god or the, or the land god or the wind god. But Yahweh is the god of it all. And you've upset him, Jonah. Are you nuts? 
You just finished telling us about the God who you say you serve and you think you can run for him. You can see, you can see that they are beginning to be filled with this amazing thing called holy fear. God uses even Jonah's rebellion to move these men to see that they're in desperate need of being saved. To run away from a God was foolish, but to run away from the God of heaven who made the sea and the land was suicidal. So do you think, when we apply this to ourselves, do you think you're running from your sin will never be found? God uses what is probably the most random method ever to find something out and to point out the sin of Jonah. So here's the question. There's a question. What have you done? Well, it's not a question about the nature of Jonah's sin, but an explanation, exclamation of horror. They were frightened to the depths of their being. They were scared. We're going to drown. And it's your fault. Jonah claims to fear God, but the pagans respond with great fear. In fact, it says exceedingly fear. Afraid, exceedingly afraid, or the NIV says great fear. Yet the pagan sailors, yet again the pagan sailors rebuke the Israelite prophet. See, in, Jonah, in Joshua 7, verse 9, Joshua says to his son Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, as well as Achan's reply. Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what God calls each of us to do, to own our sin before him and glorify him in his righteous judgments. As God begins to reveal himself to us, our sin gets the giant spotlight put on it. This is the plea that comes to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as the captain brought Jonah the message that his sin was found out, the cross tells us all that God has seen of our sins. Even when the Holy Son of God was bearing our sin, God did not relent from pouring out his just wrath on our Lord and Savior. That's what we're remembering today. The cross tells the world that God has seen our sin and the wages of sin is death. But don't forget, the gospel has a magnificent but statement in it that makes it the amazing news that it truly is. For those of us who know God, we know that he is a God of grace. Jonah should have known this. All of his work that he had done before as a prophet involved preaching God's grace to a nation that rebelled against him. He should have known this. And it was out of resentment for God's offer of grace to the wicked Ninevites that he boarded this ship to Tarshish. Jonah shows our great need not merely to understand the doctrines of grace, but to feel our personal need for the grace of the doctrines. See, God proclaims this grace at the same cross that displays his uncompromising justice against sin. In the cross of his only beloved son, God offers us a way of salvation. Through faith in the blood of the Lamb of God who bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Though we suffer temporal effects from our sin, as Jonah does, God offers salvation for our eternal souls. Jonah does not seem to have been ready to seek God's grace, but at least he's confessed his sins. You know, John Calvin says this, If then we wish God to approve of our repentance, let us not seek evasions. As for the most part in this case, nor let us run away from our sins, but be free to confess our sins. See, out of this, this is the main point. It's our fear. It is out of our fear of the Lord that we see that only God can save. And when God reveals, continuously reveals, gives revelation to who he is, the natural outcome of that should be repentance as we continue on in verses 11 to 16. What shall we do? They have no idea how to make this right. None. They're clueless completely. They've never encountered a God who's in control of everything. So Jonah does, though, and Jonah does, though, and he presents and he gives them the solution. In verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. So that Jonah tells the sailors what to do. And Jonah would rather face certain death than repent of his rebellion. Oh, my goodness. He would rather die than acknowledge that God is truly Lord in his life at that moment of time. You know, the sailors cared more for Jonah than Jonah did for himself. So what do we see they do? They row harder. They're like, we're not throwing this guy into... A, he's called himself the servant of Yahweh. We see how, he feel, how they feel about that later on. But they care. But God will have none of that. The storm gets worse. Because... He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry lands. See, there is no evidence at all that Jonah sought to repent of this disobedience and that sailors tried to fix the situation even more, thinking that their own strength will make it better. We begin to see this amazing contrast between the man of God and these pagans we see these, this men becoming more aware of their ability to save themselves and they realize that they have no ability to save themselves out of this situation. It is out of the fear of the Lord that we see that the only one that can save us is God. So they cry out this amazing prayer in verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You could probably paraphrase it as like this. O Lord, please do not kill us. Please don't. For taking this man's life. Please do not view this as a murder of of an innocent person. For it seems that you yourself, by means of this mighty storm, have been pleased to bring us to this point and to use us to bring judgment on this guilty man. In other words, the storm provided the divine verdict and showed the penalty. They are simply carrying out the Lord's wishes and they're praying, God, please don't kill me. 
In verse 16, we see it's the pagan sailors, not the Hebrew prophet, who are the models of what it means to be in the fear of God, knowing that only he can save. See, the sailors' reaction to fear the Lord shows what happens when the church is awake, doesn't it? God uses the church to awaken the world. As Christians, we sit around wondering why there's no fear of God in the society around us. We do it every single day. It might be different for each generation. See, the reason is that there's so little fear of God in the society around us is because there's so little fear of God in His church. Revival doesn't happen with having a fancy stage or amazing worship or hip environments or a great-looking cafe, and it's great-looking. History tells us, the Bible tells us, that great revivals always begin in the church when Christians regain their vision of the great and holy God they serve. They fear Him. They revere Him. They grasped with awe the saving message of grace in Jesus Christ. It's from that type of church the fear of God spreads out into the world. But until the church regains its own identity and awakens to the fear of its God, there is no way for the world around them to fear the Lord either. We are called to be the light of the world. You know, sometimes it's funny when uh, we come along and we judge the world outside for acting exactly the way that they should be acting. Right? Yet here we are, this text comes and reminds us of what we are called to be as a people of God. And I pray that we as a church, that we would regain our identity and awaken our own fear of who God is. That we would awaken the wonder, as the song says, so that we may glorify God by being disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. See, it's out of fear of the Lord that we see that only God can save. So what and who cares? As the story continuously unfolds, we come to see this Israelites, this Hebrew, who fears the Lord who is a rebel abandoning his call and fleeing the Lord. At the same time, we, we come to see the sailors who, who begin the chapter as pagans crying out to the distress of their foreign gods, as those who end up confessing the Lord's sovereign power, who fear the Lord exceedingly and worship him. What is the result of this? If we were an Israelite who began reading this narrative thinking of the Israelites as a special people who deserved the Lord's mercy and that the Gentiles were the wicked sinners who deserved God's wrath, if that's how we started reading this, we would be confronted with that emotion very quickly. See, the person with whom you identify most in the story, this prophet, this Israelite prophet, is the wicked sinner who is experiencing God's judgments. Well, those who think most, who we think are most deserving of judgment, this, these pagan sailors are shown the Lord's mercy and respond worshiping Him. 
On the one hand, this is meant to humble us. The people of God can act just as sinful as anyone else. Did you know that? And if you don't know your Lord Jesus Christ and you've been hurt by the church, I'm sorry. But we can act just as sinful as everyone else. The people of God can act like that and are just as deserving of his judgment. At the same time, it is meant to remind us that the God whom we serve delights to show us mercy that he gives us through his son, Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have repented and believed, we called, we're called for the purpose of bringing this awesome, amazing news into this world. See, God uses the sleeping witness of his rebellious prophet to reveal himself to the sailors. See, this is the thing. I truly believe God is sovereign in all things. He has to be. Because God even uses this rebellious guy to call these pagan... There's, like, these guys are double against. Not only are they in, not even close to following God, but the guy that's supposed to be a witness to them is an awful witness. And God still saves them. God has to be sovereign. If he's not, I don't know how you would explain this. Jonah's rebellion was overcoming, overcome by the God that sent the storm. How often is this the case for us? The fact that the church is, is not what she is supposed to be at the moment does not mean that God cannot use us. And I praise God for that because I am far from perfect. One commentary put it this way. For God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. And that is preciously, precisely what is happening in the case of Jonah. He's like the most crooked of sticks. But how much better it would be if Jonah would have just softened his heart and God's gracious, uh, soften his heart to God's gracious will. See, in that case, we could have been on the deck. He could have been on the deck instead of descending through this cold sea uh, as the converted sailors began to worship the awesome God. How much better for us, too, to accept God's sovereign call in our lives, serving the cause of the gospel wherever God send us, and marveling at the grace not only we have experienced, but that other people can be saved too, as God uses crooked sticks like me and like you. But don't miss the point here if you don't know God's grace. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land learned the grace that God is giving the sailors. Another man named James Boyce said it this way, You have not yet perished in your godless state because God, who made the sea around you and the dry land on which you walk, preserves you. It's called common grace. Do not remain indifferent to him. Turn to him. Approach him on the basis of the perfect sacrifice for sin made once by his own son, Jesus Christ, and follow him through your days. It is out of fear of the Lord that we see that only God can save. Let us continue to praise the awesome God who can indeed save a wretch like me 
and a wretch like all of you too. Let us stand and worship him together.